Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This episode is an interview with Michael Judd, author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. Michael is a permaculture practitioner from Frederick, Maryland, not far from my hometown. So I went down and met him and recorded this interview and another piece while I was down there live. So you get to hear some of the noise in the background. You'll hear his son, Wyatt, who was there as part of our little audience while we were putting things together. And it was a really nice time to be able to go down and meet Michael and experience that dynamic energy that comes through so well in his book. And we talk about that and why he included some of the things that he did in the book, as well as his background, which started very far away from that place that he grew up in order to go and explore the world and learn. And I'm really thankful for the stories that he shares with us in this interview. It was quite enjoyable, and I had a very good time meeting him and having this conversation. In this interview, he mentions Earth Haven Eco Village, Chuck Marsh, and Peter Bain. Since I've interviewed Chuck and Peter before, I'll include links to those in the show notes. You'll also find a link to Michael's website, ecologiadesign.com. And after listening to this, if you'd like to pick up a copy of his book, you can order it from that website and benefit Michael directly from your purchase. If you enjoyed this interview and getting to hear the expression that occurs by doing something like this live, then please support the show and help me do more of this incredible work. By becoming a monthly member at whatever level you feel comfortable with, you'll help me be able to establish a regular working budget for the podcast, and be able to plan more projects like this. Or if you've seen the pictures from the A Gathering of Farmers conference, to hire my friend John to come with me with all of his equipment, and to take pictures for us and for the community, so that we can share this work with more and more people and build the world that we want. You can find out how to support the show by going to www.thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support. Now then, on to the interview with Michael. I'll join you again afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Why don't you give us a bit of your biography and background, and we'll take the conversation from there. I am originally from these parts, Appalachia, uh, the foothills of the, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and have returned here after living better part of the last two decades in uh, Latin America, rural Latin America which definitely shaped and changed my life in many ways and uh, guided me to working with permaculture design, systems, plantings, edible landscaping, uh, just working with the earth and the elements. And most powerfully, that shift came about when I had the um, good fortune to live with one of the last of the uh, Lacandon Mayan tribes uh, in Chiapas, Mexico. In the last stretch of jungle there, La Selva, La Condona, that stretches between southern Mexico and Guatemala, still kind of a no man's land, which is how the Lacandons, you know, escaped and survived uh, the Inquisition, the Spanish uh, Christianity altogether. And they pulled themselves into the center of what was left, uh, the Lacandon jungle. And I was working in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is sort of the Mayan highland capital. And one day I saw this individual that looked like he was from another world. Uh, he was wearing this, this white garb, 
these straight black bangs and long hair, and his face looked like a carving from one of the temples, one of the stella. And I just followed him, fascinated. And finally, he's probably turned around, wondering what I was doing following him. And we had this conversation with our hands because he was speaking Mayan. And I learned basically that he was there looking for help, that he was having what sounded like parasites, troubles with his stomach. And his gods weren't responding. And right, right to mind, you know, I was trying to hysterically mimic, you know, how they, you know, how they, how they um, had toilets, you know, what were they doing? And, you know, through all these gestulations, figured out that uh, as the jungle was decreasing, their community was having to live closer and closer together compared to what they used to. And dogs were getting into the jungle. So the parasitic cycle was going fast, whereas previously they lived spread out and they had a balance in the jungle with their community. So the concentration was creating, you know, these, these parasitic problems. So I went back with him. I, uh, I went back into the jungle. We went up an old dry riverbed for about four days into the heart of this jungle. And it was a challenge to be sort of received by the community because that's how they survived, keeping, you know, especially white men out. And, but anyway, I was able to do some drawings and talking, and we came up with a, a joint understanding of creating a compost toilet and got to build it from the jungle around us. So I learned so much. I learned by living that we as humans can actually live regeneratively on a land. It was not something I was reading about. It wasn't a philosophy. I was actually seeing it and learning it. How they manage the, the jungle, the forest, intimately in an agroforestry system to get all of their food, fodder, fibers, you know, pharmaceuticals, all their medicines. Uh, how they worked with all of their systems for generations after generations. So I, I left there. I left there very sick, actually. I think I got everything I went there to help with. And it changed my life in the sense knowing that this was possible. And as I came back into the world and I saw, you know, all these fractured uh, landscapes, cultures, and communities, I actually knew that it could be different. And that shaped my path thereforth. And also getting really sick shaped my path because, you know, I had to go through all these different trials of healing and really ultimately came to the learning that the food, the earth, working with the earth and getting the food right from it was what was making me feel best, was kind of regenerating me. And that led me into biodynamics, you know, that led me to living in the, you know, the desert in Spain and working on old Moorish uh, terrace systems and, uh, and eventually permaculture. Uh, I came back and about the same time that Earth Haven down in North Carolina outside of um, Asheville uh, was being formed. And I showed up at the genesis of that, which was really neat. And I went down there to, you know, to be a part of, you know, natural building. Didn't know what permaculture was, but I heard they were building this circular, round wood, timber frame, straw bale community house. I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. So I showed up right in the middle of that and all around me, it was like the permaculture manual in living form. You know, they were putting in, you know, micro hydro. They were doing this consensus. You know, they were doing their local economics. They had a forestry cooperative that was clearing land so they could grow their food for their market. It was just all this groovy stuff and great teachers. You know, I was really fortunate to be there uh, at a time of a great gathering of, of permaculture um, teachers. Anyway, the parallels were awesome. You know, here I'd come from living with the Mayans and, and seeing and, and feeling this ancient way of living with the land. And I came back to the States and permaculture was translating that indigenous regenerative knowledge into a modern cultural, you know, translation. 
you know, that included, you know, markets, money, you know, dealing with difficult people that you didn't grow up with, you know, all of these things. So it was really fascinating. And it just, it again, further guided me in where I've come. So shortly after that, I returned to Nicaragua, which I had traveled through many years before, after actually picking coffee with Nicaraguans, is where I first met Nicaraguans in, in, in Costa Rica. It was me and the Nicaraguans out there uh, picking coffee. And I was just so impressed by their strength, their sense of family, because I was out there picking with whole families. You know, these nine-year-old girls out there showing me up, you know, picking twice as much as me. And anyway, I just, I fell in love with the people. And, and when I went through Nicaragua uh, briefly after that, I fell in love with the land, the people, their unity, and their relationship to the land. You know, they still were very land-based culture. So after I'd gone through these other stages of life and learning about permaculture and biodynamics and then reading in the newspaper, I think the New York Times, about people in Nicaragua going hungry during a drought. And that was a head scratcher to me. I mean, it's volcanic soil. It's the tropics. You know, this is fertile land. Why are people going hungry in, in such a place? And I had more answers now. I had more knowledge, you know, of, of, you know, these systems. I'd seen them. I'd lived them. I was learning about them. So I returned to Nicaragua and I started Project Bonafide. This was in 2001, 13 years ago. And I started without much of a clue in a machete, which was good, I think, you know? I think it's good to start without a clue sometimes, especially when you're going to a totally different culture and a new area. The few concepts I did have didn't get me very far. And so I started Project Bonafide with the vision of creating long-term food security, of creating this, this um, modern food forest, not really going back to creating what they had because the weather patterns have shifted and changed. So really kind of using the idea of permaculture to adapt, to see where you are and design, you know, from those conditions. So started nurseries, started, you know, just working and living in the community by myself, which I think was really of essence. They saw that I was living really rough and rustic. They took pity on me, you know, and they brought me in which I think made all the difference because then I started to really sort of just listen instead of, you know, coming from a head full of ideas. I started listening to the community. And I think one of the best things I did was to a few of the elders, I said, hypothetically, if you were given $10,000 to invest in your community, you know, what would you do with it? And I wrote down what they wrote. And it was things like, you know, a playground, uh, a library, uh, you know, a natural herbal pharmacy you know, a, a program, you know, for, for children, you know, each morning to get nutrition, basic nutrition. And even though those, you know, tied into my long-term vision of the project, which I was already working on, you know, establishing nurseries and, and gaining, you know, genetic diversity, the immediate needs were right there. And how was I going to translate this stuff, you know, to a, a new culture, uh, a culture that had it historically, but within a, just a few generations of cash cropping had lost the relationships of diversity and food forest, uh, you know, design, management. But I started where they wanted, very simply. So, for example, we started a children's nutritional program, and they were wanting to start with milk. So, local milk, local cows, local eggs. Um, I got some donations of toothbrush and toothpaste, and we started this nutritional program for children. And even though it wasn't like, you know, the, the you know, the katuk and, you know, these, these perennial greens that I was thinking of introducing into the diet, you know, some of these, you know, nut sources and, you know, multi-grafted year-round avocado production and things like that, 
the program, children's nutritional program started where they were ready, where they were interested. And over the years, that program has slowly been introduced to some of the new foods we're working on. Some of the design ideas, you know, some of the planting with the children and with the children's parents. So almost sort of through the back door of the children and working with where the community is ready, it's beginning to diversify into the vision, sort of that growth. And I think, I think what I'm pointing out here is, is be, you know, I learned to begin where people were ready to begin. And that usually makes you go back quite a few steps from where you are, where you're dreaming or what you're passionate about. Unless you want to be all by yourself out there on that plane, which I've done, it's not fun. It's pretty lonely. You got to you got to come back and you got to be where people are ready. And so that was one of the most powerful lessons I learned. And fortunately, I was joined by some really great people in the project, both locally and internationally, namely Chris Shanks, uh, who's been my, my partner, co-director down there for a good 12 years now and really is running the show there as I've returned home. So yeah, I'm back here in Frederick, Maryland. For about three years, I've been back. And I'm back to be close to my family. I'm back to begin sharing what I've learned with my community, my original community. So I think naturally in your 20s, you're, you're rebellious. You're like, I want to get away from you know, the ugliness of the culture and the things that are going on. And so it was natural for me just to go away. And now I've kind of come full cycle, an old man of 40 here. And wanting to actually come back and, and see how I can help make the change, change the things that upset me. And so I've had to do a lot of cultural translating again, you know, from having lived in rural culture and, and working on large scale projects where aesthetics are, you know, not, not the forefront of what we're doing. So as I've come back, I've, I've started a, a business. You probably hear my little boy back there too. <laughs> I've started a family, number one. And I started a business called Ecologia. It's a Portuguese word for ecology. And so it's Ecologia, Edible and Ecological Landscapes. And it has been born around my intention to get people back outside, interacting with their landscapes, learning slowly maybe some concepts of permaculture, but not even necessarily. I don't use the permaculture banner on purpose when I'm approaching you know, my, my community here, which is suburbia. Frederick, Maryland, where we're at now, used to be a farming community, a little bit of, you know, mountain culture mixed in. And we're equal distance from Baltimore and D.C., about 45 minutes. So we've become this bedroom community, which has had its, it's got definitely benefits. It's more diverse around here, but it's very suburban. So I've watched the old farms and, and, and fields I grew up playing in turn into the, these lawns with lots of chemicals and poured, you know, water design, etc., so that being the reality that I'm in, and I think it's a reality that's the majority of this country at this point. So I'm trying to, you know, look at that and translate my understanding of permaculture, translate my understanding of design and, and just getting people back to working with regenerative systems. So Ecologia really started out doing a lot of workshops, hands-on workshops through our local co-op. We co-coordinated and focused on doing very simple workshops like how do we grow mushrooms because we're in a great area for growing mushrooms here and the mid-Atlantic is very humid. Mushrooms grow crazy and wild everywhere. So how do we work with that natural observation? It grows easy. Hey, let's start with that. And amazingly, people have been really excited about fungi and mushrooms. So it's been a great way to get people 
you know, to these workshops and then introduce other concepts. You know, when they come out to a workshop here on our, on our homestead and our land, you know, I'll show them the garden's beds on swales, you know. I'll show them, um, you know, the food forest patch design, you know, herb spirals, etc. Anyway, it's been, a, it's been a mutual platform where I've gotten to learn about their interests as well and how far I can kind of, you know, push the concepts uh, of design. When you mentioned Earthhaven, were you there when it was like Chuck Marsh and Peter Bain and all, all that crew? Good heart. Uh, you bet. Yeah, awesome people. It, it, I really landed right in what I think was sort of the genesis of the, of the movement in the country, at least on that community scale. I mean, I think it was touted at the time as the first permaculturally designed community in North America. Uh, yeah, Chuck Marsh is one of my favorite people, good friend of mine throw a pitch out there for his nursery. Useful Plants is, is a great nursery and just a great resource online as well. I think they might start to be shipping some stuff, but yeah, Chuck Marsh is great. I interviewed Chuck, I don't know, about 14 months ago as we're sitting here in January right now. And it was, um, I just released an interview with Peter Bain like two days before I interviewed Chuck. And then I got to hear about how the work that they had done together, their friendship, and then a couple weeks later, in December of last year, I got to meet Peter. He was in Philadelphia at the Aubrey Arboretum giving a lecture with some folks that I knew. And it happens that my PDC instructor was one of his students years before. So we went down and hung out with Peter and them and talked for a while. And it, it was a fun time. Very different perspectives, too. It was great to have... I did my introduction to permaculture with these guys and Patricia Allison, who's also a wonderful teacher. And... Anyway, between Goodhart and Chuck Marsh and Peter and all these cats that were, were teaching this, it was great to get all the different sort of perceptions and realize that permaculture has a lot of angles, you know, from the very practical to the very spiritual. I mean, we we're doing sweat lodges and, you know, we were also, you know, just doing basic, you know, mapping outlining. It was a good introduction to me to have all those different teachers. And I always like and to be a part of or see courses that are taught by very different personalities. When you were with them, was that the group who you took your permaculture design course through? I took my introduction there. I didn't have enough money at the time to do the, uh, the they had it broken in two weeks. So I think the second week I washed dishes. But that was the design and I was living the design there, you know. It was going on. It was better than I think than any, any sort of classroom in, in the sense. And I always enjoy that at any teaching is, is the hands-ons in a space to see it at any stage that it's in. Why we're talking about great teachers, uh, one of my favorite uh, people, teachers, and mentors uh, is Doug Bullock uh, out there on Orcas Island in Washington State. Uh, he's been a big part of um, me and my life uh, in permaculture and helping start Project Bonafide as well. I met Doug just before I started Project Bonafide down in Central America because he's great with the tropics as well as the temperate. And he's just such a natural. And he allowed me the space, too, to come on up and stay at the Bullock Homestead after I started Project Bonafide, after I just kind of initiated it but still needed time to design and think and reflect. He um, hosted me up there and, and spent a lot of time thinking and doing some outlines. So I, I really credit him. And one of the things I love about him as a teacher is his stories. You know, like I say, you go to a PDC and you're going to have all different kinds of teachers. And it's really interesting when, when, when Doug teams up with someone else who's very, uh, you know, sort of fact-oriented and really, which is good. 
you know, a lot of people out there in PDC want to get every note and they really want to get the intellectual side. They don't feel like they've gotten it. They haven't gotten this head full of notes. But then Doug gets up there and tells his story, you know, about this, you know, this food forest design in Hawaii or, you know, or this, this, this real life thing. And it just it naturally sinks it into you. And I, I just love that about, about his way of teaching. I received a note from someone recently who's slowly woofing their way across the country before making it to the Bullock Brothers farm for their PDC. Do you have any advice for them before they go up there? It's like the pot of gold uh, at the end of the, the rainbow there. Um, make sure you get there, you know. I know there's some other great spots along the way, uh, but make sure you get there. I know they have a very competitive internship program. So apply early and, you know, really be as forward as is as, as comfortable uh, to get yourself in there. Because talk about a learning experience. If you can take the season, you know, a year of your life off to really dedicate to learning permaculture and, and systems in one of the most amazing, beautiful places on the planet, definitely try to get in at the Bullock Brothers for an internship. It will create a great direction for the rest of your life and great skill-based building. Uh, but definitely get there. I think they're a really neat homestead in the sense that uh, they've created their own economy through a nursery, some of their own design work, but really they really focus on living and producing on the land. Giving those recommendations about the Bullock Brothers and also, you know, your own experience of being a very hands-on, out-there kind of person and yet recognizing that there are people who they want that classroom environment, all the facts and the notes. And one of the things that you said before we began, which is a common thread, thanks to one of my past guests, Ethan Hughes, is the idea of meeting people where they're at. And a, a more interesting way that I heard that from someone was not to inflict ourselves, or not to inflict ourselves or permaculture on others. And it sounds like that's something, not the inflicting part of it, but the meeting people where they're at, is something that you very much embodied. And it's something that my wife really appreciated in reading your book because she felt like it was for a gardener and that it was for her. And then she read your book and it's like, you know, this is exactly as a gardener what I want. And I have not, as we're sitting and recording this, had a chance to read it cover to cover. But since I had weighed in on her review, I've gotten to look through it more. And the more that I work with the material, look through it, I go, you know, if I had had this earlier in my permaculture career, I probably would have done more on the ground because it's everything that I kind of wanted to do but didn't know how to. And it's all broken down in a way that's very easy to use and I think is a very good reflection from the conversation we've had today of your role in the community and the work that you're doing to really help people get to these ideas. And as we were talking before we started recording, which we may be able to speak some more to, was also that idea that there's a lot of things in there that you can do with your children. And one of the things that I want to build this year is a cannibal hot tub. And a friend of mine has always wanted to do like a, a wood-fired cob bench. And we've talked about that idea of design is do the cannibal hot tub out in the open, then do a wood-fired cob bench that can then be heated so we could use it year-round as a space on our homestead. And the way, you know, get my kids out there stomping cob and having a good time. And So could you speak some about your book and why you wanted to write it and the audience uh, that it's written for. Absolutely. Well, going back into what you were just saying, I think a lot of people come out of a PDC. I know even myself in my early years of working with permaculture, people are like, what is permaculture? You get that a lot. And it is a 
mind and tongue twister to sort of capsulate what permaculture is. I mean, especially when, you know, many of the leading permaculturists have all different perceptions of what it is as well. And I think the book helps create sort of a a soft pitch to family members, to friends, to your neighbors who you're you're trying to relate a large concept to and say, look, well here here is just an, an, an example. You know, here's an idea. You know, let's say the herb spiral. And it's kind of, you know, at this point a little cliche. So it sounds. And you can talk slowly, you know, to your neighbor about how this is just really great to grow things in. You know, the stones create this nice uh, season extension and they balance the temperature and the plants thrive from that. So you can start with that and they're like, cool, okay, yeah, I get that. I'd like that. And you could say just how cool it looks on your landscape, you know, it's year round. So you could talk to these aesthetic points and then you could say, you know, it also creates all these different microclimates. You can kind of slowly start to add in a new concept. And then you could go a little bit further and say, you know, this is also a great perennial habitat. It gives a space for the beneficial insects to overwinter. You know, it gives habitat for that garden balance so that you're not out there, you know, having to work more. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're nodding their head. And you're hitting on points they can really get. And really, you're kind of underlying. You're showing them this got multiple functions. You don't have to come out and start talking about, yeah, how about this multiple function design? And look, it's got to relate to these three other things in your landscape. No, you're just starting soft. And, and, and as, as they hopefully do it, they just begin to experience the um, dynamics of permaculture. It's kind of like a food forest. And chapter of food forest in the book starts really simple. It starts with a patch. Okay, let's start with a patch. Let's start with eight feet by eight feet. And let's think, okay, we're going to plant a fruit tree in this. We're going to plant, you know, a persimmon, right? Let's start with a simple concept of planting a fruit tree. And, you know, let's just call it, you know, good organic fruit tree care if that's where you're at. And so let's just start with the simple concept. Instead of saying, okay, a food forest is all these different layers and dynamics and all these interacting relationships that are going to do this and that, which is really cool to know if that's where you're ready to begin. A lot of people just want a fruit tree. Like, I want a fruit tree in my front yard and I want it to work. I want it to be successful. You know, I don't want to have to work a lot. I want it to be easy and, and I want it to work. So, the approach with the book is, okay, let's just start with a patch. Let's just start where people are ready. And I think that's like I, coming back to what I was saying in Nicaragua, what I learned is start where people are ready. You know, my own designs and my own interests are really far out there. And we're working on those on our homesteads. You know, we're modifying wetlands, you know, to grow all these different types of, you know, crops. You know, we're building this roundwood timber frame house. You know, we're doing giant hugo cultures. You know, we're doing these nut systems. You know, where I am in pushing my own permaculture is not what I'm trying to throw out there because that's not where most people are ready. And I'm living in suburbia and I'm looking at it, and, you know, and I'm looking and listening to where people are ready. So, and aesthetics is a big part of that. I know people are split on this. Some people could care less about the aesthetics of design and permaculture. They're all about the function. I could go either way on it. Your mention of aesthetics, one of the things that I think about is how important that can be to win people over. And with where I know some folks live, if they were to do something that was considered an eyesore to their neighbors, or perhaps, you know, would drop the drop their property value for some reason, all it would take is a couple phone calls. And next thing I know, there would be an ordinance passed against what it is that I'm doing. And, you know, well, if you're living in an, living in an environment where you need to engage others, there's a, an ongoing conversation that I've been having about 
about whether or not your position is one as a reformer or a revolutionary. And it's do you work within the system and create models that can work within that and have that dialogue or versus being someone who works outside the system to show a different model to then have a dialogue from. And it's what position do you stand in and what can you and the people around you appropriately tolerate to get this work done? Well, I think you can graph those two together. And I think that's kind of the essence of what I'm trying to capture with my book and my work is that you are kind of introducing some new concepts, but you're doing it within the system in a way. Now, a lot of what we're after as permaculture is is a paradigm shift, you know, a change in understanding and relationships. And there's lots of different ways to go about that. And I'm a very do it, hands on kind of person. I learned from being out there and doing it. That's been my greatest teacher. And since that's my orientation, that's really what I'm sharing. And for those who are similar, you know, in, in their approach to learning and doing, this, this book is about just getting started. Just get out there. Even if you have a head full of, of permaculture design or you're thinking, oh, what are all the things I need to be thinking about before I do anything? You know, what am I not thinking about? And I think that can really stymie people and keep them indoors and keep reading until they think they've got enough knowledge and then, you know, then it's time for them to die. I don't know. They haven't done shit. This kind of bridges that in the sense that people can go outside and start working with a design, start working and having fun as a project and begin to just experience the change that leads to paradigm shift, that leads to them, you know, having a new understanding of how things relate. At the very least, maybe they're out there doing something with their neighbor, you know, and hell, that's a paradigm shift these days. <laughs> you got to start, you know, slow and small with these things. So, yeah, I mean, I talk about the book as a tool, a tool to really be used. And I think in the intro, I, I talk about, hey, you know, don't leave this on your coffee table. Take this out, open it with a rock, let it get pelted with rain, dog ear it, you know, use this book and have fun with it. You know, that's why I threw in alcohol recipes and other things, you know, just let loose a little bit. Yeah, you're going to screw up. That's how you're going to learn. But you're really, really probably not going to learn a whole lot if you just don't go out there and start doing it. Go out there and get your A-frame, make an A-frame with scrap in your your garage. Go out there and mark up your lawn a little bit. Maybe you want to start in your backyard. I don't know. And mark your swale and dig it and watch it, you know, see how it does. And maybe you got to redo it. Maybe you got to shift it. Maybe you get it right on the first time. And this only way that you, I, I feel that you're really gonna get the dynamics of learning. You got to do it. You got to screw up, right? and you got to have the success too. You got to have both. I and mean, that's how I've learned almost everything I've done. You know, I've gotten some good pointers from permaculture and some of my teachers, but then I've just run out there and done it. But sorry, <laughs> you know, to also touch on the aesthetics as part of what we were talking about. How do you get this stuff accepted by your HOA? You know, how do they love it? And I think that's another realistic approach. Uh, especially where we are in suburbia. And, you know, a lot of times permaculturists are coming out of PDCs, all age people, but a lot of young people are taking PDCs. And the only place of land they have to start practicing on is their parents, right? I'm a fine example of that. And it's like, okay, look, they got some land and they're going to, you know, they're going to let me do this. And so you want it to look good. I think, unfortunately, permaculture can get a bad name fast when there's like cardboard flying around and, you know, just just looking ratty. It, it may be functional, but you can do both. You know, you can have your yard needed too, kind of thing. You know, you, you can make this look good and it can be really functional. And that's kind of my angle as a business. I throw that in the book some too, 
But as a business, I mean, we're doing high-end restaurants, you know, we're doing functional landscapes for very urban and very front yard suburban areas. And they are functioning, you know, they are growing a lot of food, they're being productive, and they look good. They're really drawing attention, which is what you want, because then people are coming over and talking to their neighbors and like, what is that? And they're like, oh, this is actually a rain garden. This is actually harvesting all the water from my house and my neighbor's land. And it's being super productive. But it looks really good. It's not obvious that it's, you know, basically a depression in the earth. As my listeners have heard quite a bit from me lately, as my wife and I look through our seed catalogs in December and January, and I'm, and I'm recording these interviews for the first and second quarter of 2014, I'm a crap gardener. I am just, my wife and I accept that we are not gardeners. The only things we can grow are garlic, strawberries, children, and cats. But as a result of that, it's because of where we live, about three quarters of our property floods now. Originally, it was about a third, but because of some changes that have been made in the valley because of some forestry work, we're noticing a change in the inundations, so that now about three quarters of it floods. The only place that we had left to really grow was our front yard. And okay, yeah, we're not good gardeners. Didn't look so good. Wasn't the most pleasing aesthetically. But if I knew to be out there tending the strawberries at 8 a.m. when the two people who walk every morning come by and they're there with their cup of coffee and I hand them fresh strawberries in the beginning of June, then I see them when they're bundled up in the middle of October and I'm growing ever-bearing strawberries that are still producing, and I hand them strawberries again, they're looking at me going, where did you get these? Just now. Have some, neighbor. And that kind of being a good neighbor can go a long way, but certainly having the aesthetics helps that and making it pleasant and pleasing and then interacting and sharing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people are out there trying to grow food. I know they are. I, when I go to do consultations, I come and I see this kind of the sorry looking patch, you know, right by the house uh, with, you know, some, some pretty weak, unhappy looking plants. So they have the intention, they want to do it, but they just don't have sort of the foundation design which is what the book and what I focus on, you know, when I do work for other people, is creating the gardens by swales, you know, creating the spirals for planting or teaching them, you know, how to create the foundation for successful growing. So you have to kind of have these designs, these foundations, these projects, if you will, in place. And then whatever you want to grow will be the success. Instead of just kind of starting with kind of like, hey, let's just plant something in the ground, you know, create the stage for it first, and then things really flourish. And it's really not that complicated. I think it gets complicated if you start to think about it too much. If you start to look at books, I don't care if it's even traditional landscaping. You look at traditional landscaping books, and you talk about flow and form and texture, things which are really cool. And if you get it right, it really creates harmony. But just go for it. You know, you'll learn. You can change it. I mean, these things are organic. You can shift them around and move them around your yard. You know, I mean, a herb spiral can be shifted anywhere you want. I'll throw one out there that's really cool. Is a lot of times you'll see an ugly stump in a yard. Great spot to put your herb spiral. Cover it up, make it look beautiful. Yeah, it's going to break down and, you know, maybe sink a little bit. But, you know, this is a small example of how you can be creative. And an herb spiral can be planted with anything you want. If it's in the shade, plant it with, you know, ferns and fiddleheads and other woodland edibles. Really just get out there and do it. You've mentioned several times about about getting caught up and overwhelmed and not doing but reading and just kind of throwing yourself into the library. And there's something that Mollison mentions in the designer's manual, I think, that the, what is it, the fallacy of academia is I think, therefore I do, or something to that effect. And 
I know what it's like to come out of a PDC or anything fired up and you think you get it and you think you know, you've got all these great ideas and I can go do this and I can go do that. I will change the world. Then you try and you fail. Or you get stumped. You're sitting there looking at the land and you're trying to think of everything you learned and you're like, shit, where do I even start? I've been there. I think that it says a lot though, that idea of being overwhelmed because I know that it took me so long to try to sit down and design because it was, well, I got all these ideas. I'm going to sit and design, put together a design. Uh, now I got a whole bunch of stuff that I have to implement for it to work. Well, now how do I break it down and do something else? But another side of that is one of my teachers, who actually has nothing to do with permaculture at all, often talks about how you have to have enough experience before you have the vocabulary to understand what it is you're doing. And I really think about that because we can sit and read a book and be able to use the words in a way that sounds like we know what we're doing and can allow us to sell ourselves as experts. But it's only as we gain experience that you really begin to understand what it is that you're doing. And I know from my own practice, once I really started doing, I thought I was ready. And I thought I knew a whole lot. I got over that initial youthful exuberance and felt that I had come to the middle age of my career in a way. And then I realized that I was wrong. I was still a juvenile in what I was doing. And only now can I go, yep, I have no idea what that is or what I'm going to do about it, but I can find out how. And I found that that's been a very important transition for myself. And I'm sure others are at a similar place where they realize that they have to accept what they don't know to be able to move forward. Right, or just start to dig in. It's kind of, you got you to gotta be able to sing before you join the choir. I mean, ideally. And I think a lot of, you know, your podcasts with Larry Santoyo and Dave and some of these great permaculture minds are talking about the larger paradigm shift. And you kind of have to have a little bit of experience to, to digest some of that. You know, you have to kind of get out there and play around, screw around, you know, fail, learn, just to kind of give some context to what they're pointing to. Not everyone. Some people get it right off. And a lot of us are coming to permaculture because they just want to do something outside. They want to create something. They want to grow food. They want to connect with the seasons and the cycles more. And yeah, you can get overwhelmed with your designs, ideas, and your course. You know, you're really pushed to think of all these different relationships and design ideas. So when you go home and you look at your own land, you're worried that you're not getting it right. You're worried that you're missing uh, an important relationship here that, oh, if I do this, that's not going to work. And you've got this complex design going on where, yeah, you need a lot of time and a lot of money and a good back. And you know what? Sometimes you can just scale that down and say, you know what? While I'm thinking about this, I'm just going to go out there and just, you know, I'm going to throw this herb spiral in, you know, or I'm going to go dig that swale or I'm going to build a small rain garden. I think a rain garden is a good example. When you go and you say, oh, you hear about a rain garden, and people are like, well, what is that? And you go online, and man, you get overwhelmed. You start, you start reading about all these engineered soils and all this data and all this stuff, and you're like, whoa, that's not for me. I can't do that. And you know what? A, a rain garden is basically, I think Brad Lancaster puts it best, you know, it's pretty much an inverted mitt. It's, it's, a, it's a depression in the ground, and that really is its essence. And of course, you can play with that um, depending on where. But if you're at home, you're on the small scale. Let's take example, you know, your, your downspout is coming down from your roof, right? Forget the rain barrel, man. I mean, come on, the rain barrel's a drop in the bucket. I mean, that might be nice for your flowers on your porch. Most of your water's going down your landscape, you know, and it's probably rushing off your landscape and into your watershed. So how do we capture some of that in a very simple way and with your abilities? So a, a simple small project could be to dig a depression, right? 
dig it out, go down about 18, 20 inches minimum, which doesn't sound like much, but man, you get digging. That's pretty deep. So, you know, again, don't feel like you got to, you know, go deep and build this big structure is what I'm getting at. Go out there and maybe six feet by six feet, go out and save that topsoil and then go down and get some sand and mix it into that lower level. Maybe throw some compost in there too. I'm a fan of putting compost in my rain garden so you can actually grow, you know, maybe a little more than, you know, these, these, these sort of drought tolerant natives. I think it can be a real part of your edible landscape. But basically what we're talking about here is just creating a depression that's going to sink the water that's coming off your spout, right? Or maybe off your driveway. And you know what? It may not capture all that water. You may only capture 60% of that volume. But that's all right. If that's all that, you know, you've got the space for, the capacity for, the time for, or then that's just where you're beginning. Just do that small depression. Capture that water and plan for an overflow. Let it overflow out. And maybe down the road, maybe you'll do another one or you'll direct that into a garden swale or something. But just go out there and just start playing with your landscape. Think about water. Think about sinking it. Think about using it and do small projects. You can, you can make them bigger, but you don't need to be an expert on engineering, you know, on the home scale, on this scale. The book talks about this and, and kind of gives you some basic examples. In our time here together, Michael, I feel that we've touched on everything that I wanted to as an introduction to yourself and the book. And I do feel a little underprepared because my wife was the one who read it and it was her feedback that got me to this place. But also hearing from you who this book was written for and who the intended audience is, that I almost feel that that's more appropriate to come at it from that direction because I know as we spoke before we began, I've fallen into that heady category of permaculture now talking about the community and paradigms and all this other stuff. And it's sometimes a little hard for me to step back and think about, well, if this is the first time that I've ever heard that word, what do I do? And I think that you've nailed it in many ways with this book as providing a place to start. And with that in mind, as we draw things to a close, is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation for the listeners? I'd say if you've been studying and learning about and interested in permaculture, for more than a year and you've not done anything, then you need to. You need to get out there and get some muscle memory. You need to get some just experience. A lot of probably what's drawn you to permaculture is is, is interacting, is, is building something, growing something, just observing and, you know, being part of the cycles. And, you know, maybe by yourself, maybe with other people, you should be out there doing something. And it can be something small, you know, continue your learning and your, and your, your perception of systems and your intellectualization of permaculture, if that's your bent, but go out there and make sure that you're also actually doing something It helps to ground and um, give you some real basis for even talking about permaculture and sharing it with others. And I, I think might've been Larry Santoya and you talk last time. He's like, don't even talk about permaculture, man. He's like, talk about a project, you know, talk about something you're doing. And I think that's so true for most people, you know, to get them interested. And what, if you want to get people interested in permaculture, I think it's a great idea. Talk about a really cool project that you're doing, you know, and, and get their interest in that, you know, don't overwhelm them. You're probably going to get tongue tied anyway, trying to, you know, describe what it is as far as permaculture and the, you know, the overall design goes. Just talk about a project, do a project, and then share that. And I think you'll get really excited and build on your success and realize that, hey, a lot of this is just doing it, 
Well, thank you, Michael, for bringing us to this place to end this interview. I really enjoy being able to get out into the community and see and know what other people are doing. So thank you, not only for the interview, but also the experience that comes with it. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And that was Michael Judd. What I really like about this conversation was one of the things that I mentioned in the interview and that I keep coming back to about that idea of not inflicting ourselves and permaculture on others. And I like that with Michael's foundational work that got him to the point to start Project Bonafide and then to come back to his hometown and spread the word about permaculture and what can be done was that he started by listening to the community, listening to what people needed, finding where his work fit into their goals and needs, because that's where the people were. That's where they were ready. And it allowed him to work with them in a direct and meaningful way from the very beginning and add more as time went on and help it to grow. And that's something that's really, to me, important if we're going to really build a better world. Meet people where they're at. Find out what their needs are and then find a way to match our goals with their needs and make it work. And since Michael mentioned Project Bonafide and his partner in that work, Chris Shanks. I am in touch with Chris, and we're looking to do a follow-up interview to discuss that project more in depth. Also, while I was down with Michael that day in Frederick with him and his family, I recorded another piece that gives us an introduction to Project Bonafide that I want to release here in a couple of weeks before I interview Chris to give an introduction to the project and provide an opportunity if anybody has questions about that work that you can share them with me, and I can ask Chris during our time together. Two other quick notes, and I think that will wrap this episode. The online PDC Plus programs are open for registration. You can find out more information about those by going to the permaculturepodcast.com slash PDC. I'm currently in the process of lining up my guest instructors, but I can say that Ben Weiss will be joining me, and I also have a teaching assistant for the first class. So things are moving along nicely there behind the scenes to get things rolling. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me and I will answer them as best I can regarding those courses, which if you want to get in touch, those usual ways are email show at the permaculturepodcast.com or give me a call 717-827-6266. You can also join in the conversation at Facebook, facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast or send me a note on Twitter where I am at permaculturecst. Or if you like letters, and I have to say that I do really still enjoy receiving handwritten mail, when you pull that envelope out of the post box and see that stamp and where it came from and someone's handwritten addresses and then you open it up and there's a card or a letter from them with a note. I just, I really love those. So if you would like to contact me in that way, that address is The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania. The abbreviation for that is P-A-17018. And the last note is, if you haven't gotten involved with it yet, please consider joining the Traveling Permaculture Library Project. You can find out more about that by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com slash library, or send an email to librarian at the permaculturepodcast.com. Include your address 
and I'll add you on the list to receive books as part of this project. All I ask is that if you join in, that you will be willing to mail any books that you receive on to the next reader once you've read the book. You can also join the project not only as a patron, but also as a librarian by emailing me a list of what books you'd be willing to include in this project. Again, that email address is librarian at the permaculturepodcast.com. And that's going to wrap this episode. Thank you for joining me. I will have a short show out for Wednesday, March 26th, 2014, which is a review of Nikki Jabor's latest book, Groundbreaking Food Gardens, which, just as a quick note, I think pairs very nicely with Michael Judd's Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist as kind of a two-book set that you could give to someone to introduce them to permaculture and gardening. Until the next time, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other.